hasn't this been a great day, great weekend? I'm about to ruin it. Um, no. We've had such positive discussion, and now I'm going to talk on a not-so-wonderful topic. Um, originally, I had titled this message, The Dangers of False Worship, and I went, that doesn't sound very happy. Um, but it's something we need to discuss, and I, uh, really, it's more the idea of being steadfast in our worship. Back in 1996, there was an expedition up of up Mount Everest, and this expedition was not unlike many others, except that it had a large amount of paying customers that were going. For $65,000, you could pay one of the world's greatest climbers, who would train you and escort you up to the top, weather permitting, and then hopefully get you back down. Rob Hall was the most famous Himalayan, Himalayan climber at the time, summiting Mount Everest more than any other non-Sherpa mountaineer. He was also known as one of the most conservative mountaineers and climbers because he would never risk his life nor anyone else who was with him. In fact, in 1995, he was within 200 yards of the summit of Everest with a paying client realized that the weather was bad and turned them all around only 10 minutes away from the ultimate destination. The following year, that same client came back, determined to reach the summit. And he paid another $75,000 to be escorted to the top of Mount Everest. And sure enough, they started at 2 a.m. at base camp number four and climbed and climbed and they ran into some difficulty along the way and they reached what's called Hillary Step. But this was at the turnaround time, at the most difficult portion of the climb. Because Rob had trained all people climbing with him that at 2 p.m., no matter where you were, whether you were 500 yards from the summit or if you were five feet from the summit, you turned around because you had a chance then of getting down. Rob is, in fact, the one who coined the phrase, climbing Mount Everest is not a big deal at all. Climbing down from Mount Everest is what makes you alive. However... Because this man had paid not once, but twice, Rob felt obligated at 2 p.m. to continue on. And they went. And though they were at the most difficult part of the climb, they forged on ahead. At 5 p.m., they still hadn't reached the summit of Everest. So in desperation, Rob realized what was going on and began to turn around, but he and his client ran into a storm that cut them off from their descent, and they froze to death up there on the mountain. Rob leaving behind a wife who was six months pregnant with their first child. What had been the guiding principle of Rob Hall's life had gotten him up and down the mountain nearly half a dozen times already, but when it came time to make the most crucial decision of his entire life, he went beyond his principles because he had familiarity with the mountain. He thought he knew better, and so he chucked everything away that he knew. I have a better way than the wisdom that has been given to me. To be around the things of God for us as Christians for a long time 
can be just as dangerous if we have a familiarity with the God with whom we worship. It's not healthy and it's not dangerous, or and it's dangerous to not view God as He truly is. In fact, it can lull you into a trap of complacency and laziness, and you can begin to think that God is not as serious as He truly is. In Exodus 24, we're introduced to several men, and after Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt, you have Aaron, his brother, and then he's got some nephews with him. And these men all stood at the base of Mount Sinai, watching the thunder and cloud envelop the mountain. And they see Moses receiving from God the very Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 24, we read, Then he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. These 74 men had a front row seat with God Almighty at Mount Sinai. And it says this, Then Moses came up and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. A few verses later, my mind is kind of blown considering this. It says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. God, as he was ratifying his covenant with his people Israel, he calls out four men in particular, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, by name. A little later in chapter 28 of Exodus, God appoints Aaron and these four sons to be his priests commanding that they be consecrated for his service in Exodus 29. These men were no ordinary men. They saw extraordinary things, and they were to serve God in an extraordinary way. So when we pick up the story of Aaron's sons later in Leviticus 8, and if you have your Bibles, turn to the end of chapter 8, and we'll start kind of right near the end there. But we see this incredible ceremony of consecrating them for the priesthood. It's a huge celebration. It's one the whole nation of Israel would have showed up for. It was one they celebrated. They were proud of it. This was a spectacle beyond what they could imagine. And Yahweh, God Almighty, the great I Am, was right there with them. And it says in Leviticus chapter 9, verses 23, And Moses and Aaron went up to the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And, they, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. If there was ever a mountaintop worship experience, this was it. So let's read what happens next. It's got to be exciting, right? 
Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. What just happened? A day which should have ended with the glorious worship of God Almighty ended with the funeral of the high priest's two sons. As we consider this action of Nadab and Abihu, I want to offer three different cautions this evening or this afternoon of how to remain steadfast in our worship so that we don't suffer the same judgment that, that Nadab and Abihu suffered. Three cautions to remain steadfast in worship. The first one is to guard your heart from hasty exuberance. Nadab and Abihu knew what God had required of them. They said back in Exodus 24, along with all the people of Israel, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They proclaimed that, but what they decided on their first day on the job was that they would do it better than they were instructed. They would do it differently. The text says that they offered unauthorized fire to the Lord. There's been much speculation as to what unauthorized fire means. Uh, the word carries the connotation of prohibited or illegitimate. Some translations translated as strange fire. Whatever it was, we know it was not what the Lord had authorized for his worship. These guys were enthusiastic. They were sincere they were excited, but what they did was not according to what God had commanded. Nadab and Abihu, they were not outsiders. They were anointed priests who had seen God on the mountain. But they thought they knew better. Their father was the high priest and they were trained in the service of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10 offers the warning, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And boy, did they fall. They fell dead before the Lord and before all of Israel. So guard your heart from hasty exuberance. But guard your heart from arrogant creativity as well. What do I mean by that? They came to worship God with foreign fire and they were executed on the spot. And we might shout out, but that's not fair. They were trying to worship God. The, the great reformer John Calvin said, if we reflect on how holy a thing God's worship is, the enormity of the punishment will by no means offend us. We can speculate all day long why Nadab and Abihu sinned like this. 
Perhaps they were just carried away by the emotion of the day, by the enthusiasm as they saw the glory of God fill the temple or the tabernacle and the fire of God come down from heaven. But as we're commanded in John chapter 4, we must worship in spirit and in what? Truth. The Spirit of God will never lead believers to do anything contrary to His Word. No matter how happy or enthusiastic or sincere they may feel. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, A godly man dare not vary from the pattern which God has shown him in the Scriptures. Think about it. When we bring our own creativity for the sake of creativity's sake, and and try to give God what is not what He has asked for, it's as if we're saying God's not wise enough to appoint the manner in which He needs to be served. Man basically is telling God that his rules for worship are defective. So they attempt to make it better and add their own inventions. Could anything be more arrogant? Coming into worship should be with a spirit of humility, not arrogance. For the, for the general congregation, for everyone leading in the music or in all aspects of worship, I'm reminded of the exchange in the Chronicles of Narnia when C.S. Lewis writes about this exchange between Aslan and Prince Caspian. He writes, Welcome, Prince, said Aslan. Do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? I don't think I do, sir, said Caspian. Good, said Aslan. For if you felt yourself sufficient, it would have been proof that you were not. And of course, this is not the only time in Scripture that we see God punish those who disrespect Him in worship. There are great other examples of well-meaning, exuberant worship that went awry. God rejected Saul's unprescribed worship in 1 Samuel 15. When, God, when, when Saul offers a sacrifice out of accord with God's instructions, he's rebuked and it says to obey is better than sacrifice. Uzzah, remember when he reached out to help God out and he touched the ark as it was falling to the ground when it was being transported by a cart which it should never have been on? That explicit, Uzzah reaching out to help the cart explicitly violated God's command. And it says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. God also rejected Israel's pagan worship practices in Jeremiah's day, calling them that which I did not command or decree, nor did it even come into my mind. These are all great Old Testament examples, but as we even heard, we mentioned this morning, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, got struck down for their lie, trying to make themselves better in the eyes of the church, saying, look at us. Nadab and Abihu were slain after a great demonstration of of the glory of God, whereas Ananias and Sapphira were put to death by the Lord on the heels of the outbreak of the presence of God in establishing His church on the day of Pentecost. 
What do these events have in common? Both of these events were incredible reminders of God's holiness before the people. Which is the exact point of worship. To remind us of God's holiness. The third thing we need to guard our heart from is unholy assumptions. In verse 3, we read that Moses didn't mix words when he quote-unquote, comforts his grieving brother Aaron. How does Moses respond? It says, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Before all the people, I will be glorified. Nadab and Abihu were guilty of violating the requirements of God's absolute standard because they went beyond that which they knew. The priests had received repeated and solemn warnings as to the necessity of reverence before their God. But they didn't take God's holiness seriously enough. And now everyone knew it. Including their father and every priest who would enter the Holy of Holies after them. Because the high priest now could only ent- understood that you only entered the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And what did they have to do? Tie a rope around their ankle with bells on it. So if those bells stopped jingling, okay, that guy got struck dead by the holiness of God and he had to be drug out by the rope. All of Israel now knew this, that God's holiness was to be taken seriously and you may be saying, well, that's the Old Testament and we're New Testament people and I don't disagree with you. Um, things are different now. We're not offering bulls and goats uh, because Jesus has already paid the price for us. So we're not obviously expected to return to the practices of Old Testament sacrifices and temple worship. I agree with you. So let's see what the New Testament has to say on this in, in worship. Even better, let's examine what the Lord himself had to say on worship practices. You can't have a worship conference without going to John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn now to John chapter 4, where Jesus has this wonderful discussion with the Samaritan woman at the well. And because I started off with the bad news, the three cautions, I want to give you three admonitions or encouragements uh, for remaining steadfast in worship. And we're going to see these, honestly, um, if, if, if Nadab and Abihu had, had applied these principles, they might not or they would not have suffered the same fate that they did. And just to remind ourselves of the context of John chapter 4 as you turn there, remember the Samaritan woman, she was this disgraced woman among a disgraced people. The Samaritans, if you can remember, they were, when the northern kingdom had, had been taken into captivity, the Assyrians had, had taken all the really, the quote-unquote good people. The, they took the best of the best, the cream of the crop, but they also just kind of took the competent ones. But they left behind the undesirables. They didn't want them. When you're going to take something to captivity, you don't care for the undesirables. They're going to be more work than anything else. So they left the riffraff. They left the good-for-nothings. They left them there. And, and those who were left intermarried with various Gentile tribes and created this kind of hybrid, which became known as the Samaritans. 
So they had a little bit of this, a little bit of that in their customs and in their religious practices. Some of the old worship practices of Judaism had mingled in with the Gentile things. And then there was a little mixture of pagan worship that came into there. And so you had this kind of worship going on that they had at Mount Gerizim, but they had no knowledge of the true or living God. So let's pick it up starting in verse 22. Jesus says to her, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The main feature of John 4 is this nature of worship, really the heart of worship. And, and the first admonition for remaining steadfast in worship is God-glorifying worship is spirit-filled. When the text is talking about the Spirit, it's not referring to the Holy Spirit here. Uh, the, the original text makes that clear. And Jesus is talking really about the expression of worship. In other words, it's to be done with the Spirit. It's not just with the body. It's not a mechanical thing. It's not running your thumb over beads. It's not mindlessly repeating prayers because you're told to. It's not just going through this religious ceremony over and over. It's not just some sort of external conformity. It's from the Spirit. It's from the inner man. It's from the deep depths of the being of the person. It's, it's with all the heart, the soul, the mind, the strength. It engages the mind as it carefully examines the truth. It's from the heart where the feelings and the emotion are identified. It's with everything that's within us that we worship God. Jesus, Jesus' point here is that a person must worship not just by external conformity, I don't just sing the hymn because I have to. Now, nobody's used the term or the, the, the joke yet of preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, you guys sing the hymns out of great love and great affection and out of the overflow. We don't just sing these hymns because we have to. We sing because our spirit must. Really, the best way to think about spirit worship is to examine your heart attitude before a holy God is your heart tuned to sing His praise. Pastor and author Albert Martin wrote, Men have worshipped with their open Bibles and with the name of Christ and the Bible on their lips, while whole congregations have been held in the grip of barrenness and lifelessness and powerlessness, where it has been given weeks and months and years since hearts have been ravished with the sight of the living glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Years since a hymn has been sung with abandonment. Years since a tear has trickled down the face of a worshiper. Years since a hallelujah flowed out of a bursting heart. End quote. God-glorifying worship is spirit-filled. It must be spirit-filled. But God-glorifying worship also must be truthful. If we go back, Jesus says to her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Samaritans, as we established, didn't know God. 
Nadab and Abihu did though. They even saw God on the mountain. They knew Him. They knew whom they worshipped. Salvation's truth came to them first. And then it was supposed to go through them to the world, but they ignored the truth. Jesus is saying to the woman at the well, as, as a Jew, as one who worships according to the Old Testament, and as one who worships in Jerusalem, we know. We have the knowledge. We have the Scriptures. We have the covenants, the promises, the adoption. We worship that which we know. But Jesus doesn't end there. He says the truth has to work in connection with the Spirit. God wants all the emotion. He wants all the passion, all the soul, all the spirit, and all the heart and the mind engaged in worship. But in perfect coordination, in harmony, and in agreement with everything He's revealed in His Word. Otherwise, you're just like Jesus who called all the religious leaders of the day whitewashed tombs. Outside, painted white and looked good, but inside, just full of death. And of these, he said, these people draw near me to, near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Passion should not exist without substance. It's good to have all the beautiful emotions, the passions, the feelings that God has innately put within us. These take as a wonderful gift of His grace. It's good to let our hearts burst in thankfulness, but always in a response to the truth. John MacArthur has said, you can't go up in transcendent praise unless you've gone down in the depths of profound understanding of the greatness and the wonder of God in all His fullness. In other words, the more you know about God, the more you understand His Word, the more your eyes will be opened to understanding His glory. You'll sing the songs of praise in a different way when you understand the truth. The music in our worship services, frankly, in a lot of Christian contemporary culture, is just treated as a pep rally for the main event, the sermon. But who is the worship leader in your church? It's not the guy leading the music. He is simply a facilitator. The worship leader in your church is the preacher. He teaches the truth of God's Word, which in turn gives us understanding so that we, you, may respond with an overflow of praise and thanksgiving. I might have just talked myself out of my own job title. <laughs> but God-glorifying worship must be truth-filled. And it is that spirit and truth connection is simply because our spirits respond to the truth of God. But God-glorifying worship, finally, is holy. What Nadab and Abihu lacked was a respect for the holiness of God. They had the truth, but they didn't fear Him. They became too familiar with Him and didn't revere God in His holiness. God demonstrated the consequences of ignoring His holiness, and they suffered that. But on the other hand, in this beautiful picture of the woman at the well, God glorified Himself in one of the most unlikely cases. In an uneducated, disgraced Samaritan woman. So a disgraced people, but she was even disgraced among the disgraced people. 
Compare her to Nadab and Abihu, you couldn't have more social opposite ends of the spectrum. But what did she do when she learned the truth? How did she respond? The text says in, in verse 28, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She knew that this man was different. That he was set apart. That he was holy. Her response was to worship and then what? To go witness. Nadab and Abihu and the Samaritan woman, both of them had passion and zeal. Both of them had the truth presented to them by God himself, but only one responded appropriately according to that truth which, which they were taught. It says, continuing on in John 4, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of what? The passion? No, because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you, sa what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They responded to the truth, and they believed. Was God glorified in the end there? You bet. Nadab and Abihu glorified God in their case too. They glorified God by demonstrating His justice and holiness. Samaritan woman glorified God by demonstrating His grace and His holiness. God glorifying worship is spirit-filled, it's truthful-filled, and it is wholly reverential. So how does this play out in our current day? In a really practical sense. A few months ago, I had reached out to, a, to invite my friend Kosti Hinn to come speak at this year's Steadfast Conference because of his unique perspective on this issue in our contemporary culture. And unfortunately, his schedule didn't permit, but a couple of weeks ago, we sat down together on camera to discuss how this idea of spirit and truth play out in our world today and in our worship today. So we're going to show you an, unedit or a, an edited version down now just for time's sake. Uh, but later, when you, if you go on to steadfastinthefaith.org, there'll be the full 45 minute available to you online to view. Um, I hope you enjoy this and you learn so much from what he has to share from us. And we can play that now. <laughs> hey, good to be here with good. you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for, for being willing to talk about this great topic of worship. I know it's a, an issue you're passionate about. It's one I'm passionate about as well. Uh, you have a great story. We'll get into that a little bit later, but you're a, kind of an authority on the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement, uh, and on worship. It's an, so let's start there. Let's understand a little bit just the background of the prosperity gospel and how it understands worship and singing uh, in, in its context. Yeah, so I'll contrast it now being in the Bible church world. Okay. Um, in, in the Bible church world, we would view worship as all-encompassing, right? 
not just about music, but about the Word, about service and our giving. All, worship is a, is a way of life. It's a lifestyle. And people, if they were to come to our, our churches that are more biblically driven, and they're just coming for the music, they're going to be wildly disappointed because there's a, a tip of the spear that's coming, and it's the preaching of God's Word. And there's worship that goes on for another 167 hours after the one hour in the building, so to speak. So that's worship now, proper worship, where it's a lifestyle. Worship for, for me back when I was in the prosperity gospel and in that movement as a whole is more of a tool in the toolbox to build my empire or build my kingdom. It's a means to an end. I'm really trying to prime people for whatever I'm going to get them to do. And then also worship is very me-focused. The music is about me. Everything wants to elevate man so that uh, the message that is about man will settle in on hearts that are already so fixated on themselves. It, it's amazing because that's so countercultural to what we understand in the Bible because worship should be focused upon Christ. It should be focused upon God, not upon that idea of creating a sensation of emotionalism, like you just kind of mentioned. Uh, expound upon that idea. What does worship in that context of worshiping in spirit and in truth it, deal with in the, in the prosperity gospel? Yeah. So in understanding what Jesus is talking about, you could boil it all down in a sort of pithy way to say he's not talking about you know where we're going to worship, but maybe how or the nature of the way that we worship. And it's in spirit and truth. And one of the most important things to do in in understanding worship is to stay in balance. You have the wild emotionalism that uh, I think we as humans have the tendency to swing to, where we're riding the highs and we're crashing in the lows. We do that in life also, where, uh, you know, when we're on top of the world, it's, you know, God is good, everything's good, but then when things are bad, apparently God's not still good, though his nature is always good. I think that's an emotional wrestling match for people. And our worship reflects that, is wild emotions, they make us feel good. We feel like we're having the right worship experience when the emotions are, are high and we're feeling it. But Jesus is describing a balance. It is spirit, it is zeal, it is passion, it is emotion-filled expression, yes, but it is always grounded in truth. It's spirit and truth. And I think we ought to pick on ourselves, per se, if we're a little more conservative. We have the habit to swing over into a kind of the, the frozen chosen mentality where it's just us, and, and it, it can be cold orthodoxy. And so either way, I think there's two things happening. One, we're either trying to fake power in worship by manufacturing an atmosphere and an emotion, and it's not rooted in truth. And I think you swing the pendulum the other way and you, you forget power. You forget the joy of being an early Christian. You're speaking my language right now. <laughs> I, I love it. I'm just going to talk about the emotionalism side a little bit. Um, it, it's, it's more for my own gratification. I almost feel like that's, that's what it's bringing about. It's, 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 it becomes self-centered in, in a sense. And, and how is that dangerous when, when that worship becomes more of a self-centered rather than who it's supposed to be directed to? Yeah. Well, we're missing the point of worship. And we are human, and we are finite, and we are forgetful. So we often go and roll back into the common denominator of self. And it's selfishness, and it's the focus on me. 
And just like Peter and the New Testament writers are often saying, it's not really hard. It's no big thing for me to remind you of these things. It's like pastors, our job is to say the same 50 things a hundred different ways over the course of the years. We need to be reminded. Worship is not about us. It is about God. It is about high doxology, these high glory pinnacles. The glory is not about us. Now, you're obviously passionate about this issue. This is probably this is something that's that's near and dear yeah, to just, your heart. Just, just a bit, just, just a little bit, um, and and not everybody in our audience knows exactly who and what your story is and everything. So so tell us a little bit why this is such an important issue to you. Yeah. So a couple of fun facts. I got saved by the same God mm-hmm. as everyone else. Okay. Uh, by Wonderful. The same, by the same power, and I believe in the same <laughs> Jesus. I think we've got the same Jesus. I'm pretty sure we all do. Um, the one thing that is a little different or unique uh, is my last name. So Hin, obviously, you know, my uncle is Benny Hin, you know, one of those faith healers on TV and all that. And I, I grew up in that world, right in the center of it. And I worked with him, for him. God had other plans. And through a series of events, faithful people planting the seed of the gospel, uh, people who talked to me about the sovereignty of God, my now wife, who's an incredible woman of God, who asked me questions and, and was always gracious, but a lot of HMU moments helped me understand type things. Mm-hmm. Um, so you guys talk about this, or uh, you fly in Gulfstream jets, but uh, the people you serve don't. And you, you stay in hotel rooms upwards of $25,000 a night. Like in Dubai, we stayed in the Burj Al Arab. And, and you preach the gospel, but you live like celebrities. How, how does that all, how do you reconcile that? And I was forced to deal with those questions. And the more I did, I would liken them. And a pastor of mine has done this as well. He's likened it in my life to cracks in the dam. And crack after crack, eventually that thing's just going to burst. And one day, uh, studying for a sermon... John chapter 5, not far after the woman at the well, healing at the pool of Bethesda. I go to preach. I'm a pastor at the time. I'm thinking, man, healing. I'm a hen. I got this nailed. Uh, get ready for this one, people. You know, real, real cocky and, and sure of myself. And in study, I was given a commentary and had no idea who the author was. Never really studied a lot of theologians. Didn't really worry about big words and stuff. Guy gives me a commentary. My pastor he says, this will help keep the train on the tracks. The man... John records, didn't even perceive the translated word who Jesus was. So now I'm confused because word of faith, prosperity theology says, I I know who Jesus is and I get my healing because I know who he is and I have enough faith. I give, I say things that are declarative. I can literally control my reality or the way we used to say it is you can make it happen with your mouth. I turn to this commentary and all of a sudden uh, the, the author is unpacking these truths and He says, here is the sovereign power of Christ and his healing ministry in action. And he goes on to unpack the sovereignty of God. I start remembering people like a coach in college. I played baseball down in Texas. He used to talk to me about the sovereignty of God, never pressing in too far. Back then I drove a Hummer and was, you know, Mr. Hotshot, prosperity gospel lifestyle. And this guy just kept giving me truth, cracks in the dam. And so I see the sovereignty of God in action. Then the commentator goes on to say, and Therein is evidence of the cruelest lie of faith healers today, that if uh, you just have enough faith, you'll get healed. And he says, the people that these fake faith healers fail to heal are guilty often or blamed of negative confession, unbelief, not given enough money, but God is sovereign in healing. And I am just blown away at that moment. I start weeping. I repented of my sin in study as a quote-unquote pastor. 
and the Lord transformed my life, that marked the beginning of losing my title. Uh, the godly men around me said, okay, you're not pastor anymore. You're PIT. You're pastor in training. Uh, seminary process, uh, guys kicking the rocks over in my life and really just analyzing things, getting into biblical counseling, walking that road. It's about a four-year journey, just digging in. And so now everything's anchored to God's Word, just like other faithful men have done for decades. And yet there are some experiences I can share. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's more fun even now is I'm becoming irrelevant in many ways because so many other people are getting saved out of these movements. And you see young women and young men leaving schools of signs and wonders and, and running from it because God's saving them too. And now they're telling their story. And so I'm excited to watch as Jesus does what he said he would do is build his church. You're becoming one of a mass of people Absolutely. coming out of Just one in the mix. Now, I've watched YouTube videos of your Uncle Benny. I mean, they, they sing some of the same songs we, oh, we yeah. sing. And beautifully. Beautifully. Yeah. I mean, they've got the large choir in the background. You've got this great rousing rendition yeah. of How Great Thou Art going Absolutely. on. As your Uncle Benny comes out with his arms oh, yeah. spread wide open. Yeah. Um, those songs that you sang there, I mean, how different are they to you? Like, how were you perceiving them then? Give us the before and after yeah. kind of look at some yeah. of those even. Well, I'm going to sing How Great Thou Art, no matter who sings it. I don't yeah. care. I love that song. <laughs> and the, the better we can make it sound with gifted and talented people, yeah. praise God for that. However, they can also be used as tools for deception. And we often see that throughout the New Testament, where uh, in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, those first pivotal verses of what Peter is going to talk about for an entire chapter, which is false teachers. Uh, as uncomfortable as this may seem, he says that there will be those who secretly introduce destructive heresies. That means they're going to get in in what looks like the church. That means they're getting in where it sounds like the church. That means they're getting in where it even feels like the church, but it's not the church. So you're saying essentially that our theology is going to affect our worship and, and who is creating that theology even and, and building that theology and who's associated with it, um, it shapes a lot of what we're doing. Absolutely. I think we first have to understand that doctrine is good. Mm -hmm. Theology is good. Theology is simply, it's, it's, theology is not suits and ties. Mm -hmm. Theology is not old hymns and, and that's all we sing. Theology literally translated is like, is God logic. Yeah. The, what my mind knows about my God. Mm -hmm. So how in the world, whether you wear a suit and a tie or a v-neck and skinny jeans, what I know about God is what matters the most. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't matter what it sounds like. I don't, I'm not really concerned about what it all looks like. I want to know where it's rooted. Where does it come from? What is the knowledge of God that is the sort of umbrella over all that happens? I mean, there's so many people who are very sincere sitting in, in your uncle's crusades and in churches that, that, that promote a prosperity gospel and a word of faith thing. How, how do we feel about these people who, who are just kind of blindly don't understand they're being deceived by some of these teachers. Well, you asked how do we feel about them. I think that we need to feel like they're the mission field, certainly. And we need to have uh, a pastor, older pastor, always tell me, sometimes I'd go through phases where I'd get real frustrated with why people are still caught up in this. He used to say, Costi, you need to have the heart of a child and the height of a rhino. You need to be tender and tough. And I think that's how we need to approach people 
who are caught up in these movements. Number one, we are firm in our theology, we are firm in the truth, we are uncompromising in it, but yet we're flexible with people. I'm walking with them. They're, they're not me. I'm converted. My job then is to throw the rope to them. They're the mission field. I want to walk with them. Some people work it out through a process of a few years. My process, thank God nobody gave up on me. So many people are in this movement, and it's going to take patient, gentle, godly, long-suffering people who are living what Jude writes about in the later verses, like Jude 17 to 23, where he says, have mercy on those who are doubting. Save others, snatch them from the fire. And then he says, have mercy on those on others with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. It's three categories. You've really got these people that are doubting. I want to be gentle and patient with them and walk with them. No, no hardness of heart towards them, even if they're deceived. And then you've got people you need to be snatching from the burning, like Coast Guard operation. You're coming in and you're going, hey, I want to meet for coffee. You're in something that's very dangerous, and you're going in on a rescue operation. Then there's others. Have mercy on them with fear. It's staying. i got to keep healthy distance. Let's kind of go into the theology aspect. I know you love theology um, and, and, and the understanding of, of biblical things. And I've heard you talk a lot about the Christology um, yes. particularly within the Word of Faith movement and, and how that has, has shown itself even in its music mm-hmm. and what it's producing. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, let's, let's do a, a loving ripping off of the Band-Aid on, okay. here. Um, for, for me and for our church and our elders and, and many others in, in quote-unquote, the Bible church world, Bethel and Jesus culture are a no. We don't sing Bethel and Jesus culture. And before you know, people's blood pressure goes up, we, we should discuss and dialogue openly. Here's why, if we want to really understand different positions on this. We've gone no on Bethel and Jesus culture. Number one, I have family members, one of them whom recently actually left the, the Jesus culture orbit. She cut an album with them, all of that. So I was in that world, in deep, family ties in it. And so let's just even take the inner workings, the interpersonal stuff and, and certain things Let's leave that out even. Let's just look theologically. When you look at Bill Johnson, who's the pastor of Bethel Church, Reading, when you look at the origins and the birthing of Jesus culture and Bethel music, Kim Walker Smith and, and all of them that are in that orbit, being honest, not just railing on everybody, let's stay theological, not personal. Their Christology is a heretical Christology, and here's why. Page 29 on Bill Johnson's book from 2003, Destiny Image Publishing, when heaven invades earth, he says that Jesus did his miracles as a man in right relationship to God, and then there's an ellipsis, dot, 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 not as God. Later on, somewhere around pages 77 to 78 and beyond, he says that Christ laid aside his divinity. Here's why they say that. Because they tell people that Jesus did his miracles as a man to show us that we could too do signs and wonders as those empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. So, come to our school, the Bethel Supernatural School of Ministry. Another guy, Todd White, who has the dreadlocks, has the Lifestyle Christianity School. My uncle has the Signs and Wonders School of Ministry. So, regardless of denomination, regardless of where you're coming from, it's important we all understand the foundational and biblical truths we have to stick to as believers. So, Bethel and Jesus culture are a no, it's not a debate about spiritual gifts. 
It's not a debate about whether God does miracles. I believe that we still serve a healing, powerful, supernatural God. I know you do too. It is about Christology. That's tier one. That's like us and and maybe Mormons saying, we're, we're pretty different. Or, or us and, and, and a Muslim saying, we're pretty different because of our belief about Christ. So obviously everybody knows that um, the YouTube videos of your uncle throwing the jacket around and slaying thousands of people at a time and everything, that's become a joke on YouTube now and, and people don't take it as seriously anymore. Uh, but the prosperity gospel and word of faith movement is still active. It is rebranding itself. Uh, how has that been happening? Yeah. Or where are we seeing that? Yeah, I, that's, first of all, a great question, because you look back, people say, like, where did the prosperity gospel start? Or where did all this begin? And they want some, you know, history lesson. Just go back to the book of Genesis in the beginning, when the serpent whispered to Eve and said, did God really say, you know, undermining the truth of, of God? That's ultimately where this all reaches back to. Um, but a new generation rises up, and the enemy is very crafty, and he simply rebrands and repackages. So now what we're seeing is the less weird, the less weird. Weird didn't work after a while. I remember growing up and I stopped inviting friends to my church because it was too weird. You couldn't sell that anymore. And so what we're seeing now is the guys like, you know, the, the Stephen Furtick's who, who would hold to word of faith theology. That's, that's not a, a, you know, that's the blessed life stuff, the prosperity gospel. Um, you've got guys like uh, Joel Osteen, who they are essentially America's pastor now. Chipper, peachy, happy, healthy, wealthy. It is the prosperity gospel, again, but rebranded, repackaged, no flying white jacket, no people falling over. It's just pep talks. It's motivational speaking. So the enemy is crafty. He knows how to rebrand for a new generation, and I'll link that to you know, with the Bethel and the Jesus culture conversation is, I think this too. I think that the enemy has used our weaknesses in biblical literacy, weak pulpits, weak churches, to allow a generation to be swept away. And so what we need to do now is raise the standard, preach the word, preach with passion, have both spirit and truth, get right back in the game, not sit around kind of in our little holy huddle worrying about ourselves and our big words, but get out there to preach the truth and go on a rescue operation for people. It almost seems to me that, that one of the ways these rebranded Word of Faith Prosperity Gospels are getting their name out there, it, it is through the slick social media, it's through all that, but the way they're infiltrating is through their music in so many ways. Absolutely. I mean, you have elevation worship, you have Jesus culture. It's, it is that, that subtle poison being dropped into the church without a lot of fanfare yeah. that it's coming in yeah, and, and it's showing up. And I know I've heard Conrad Mbewe, um, that a great African pastor, talk about how the number one export out of uh, America is the prosperity gospel, but we're also export, these guys are also exporting inwardly within the church um, and just doing it subtly. Is that, is that something you've seen? Uh, in, in your experience. Yes, I have. Yeah. And music is such a strong avenue into these circles and into an entire generation because people are constantly listening to music. We as human beings, we love music. Uh, that is important. And just like when there are false teachers being raised up, we need to have bold kind of reformation type of preachers again, a revival in the pulpit. 
there, there has to be something in the music world. We don't need to look like the world. We don't need to act like the culture. Absolutely not. But where's the passion? Uh, there are so few bands and, and singers. If you just did a T-chart and said, give me all the people that are spirit and truth. Give me the passion. Give me something for my generation. Give me something that, that looks like 2019 that's passionate and only full of truth. Not linked to false, false teachers. Linked to sound, biblical, passionate warrior preachers that aren't compromising. That is a short list. Go to the other side. And, and find me all the false teachers with the bold passion and the YouTube clips and the Instagram stuff and everything real rah-rah, and then link all the bands and show me all the singers. They've got the passion. Problem is they don't have the truth. So, and I know this probably picks on our camp more than any other, but we have got to have a generation of gifted, talented, stable, doctrinally sound people and individuals. And I know they're out there. I know you're one of them. I know the Gettys are there. I know like Sovereign Grace Music and many others. I know there are some, but there needs to be not just a revival in the pulpit through preaching, but a revival or a reformation in our music as well. Yeah. Well, our, our Steadfast Conference exists to, to support the local church. Uh, particularly in the Bakersfield area, and, and to encourage and, and bring them. And that's what we've been trying to do with this conference, is to, to bring the church together and, and to understand what God has called us to in worship. And, and it's been wonderful. Would you have any final words to encourage us in what God has called us to as worshipers? Yeah. Let's keep having in our churches, or start having if we're not, good, faithful, robust, biblical dialogue and discussion. Let's try to minimize debate, but sometimes we, there's some good back and forth. Let's sharpen one another on what true biblical worship is and be open to change on both sides. So when we're just singing hymns and we can't sing anything else, and don't you dare add in a song that you might hear on the radio, and you keep the drummer out of the, out of the sanctuary now. I don't want none of that in my... Well, you got that right over there. Yeah, we got but... some drums in our church. So <laughs> let, let's be open to hearing the, the, the voices and the music and the sounds and the instruments that we can use to worship God and to create a, a beautiful sound and aroma for Him. And then on the other side, uh, let's be open to looking in the mirror. Are we riding the wave of emotionalism? Are we manipulating people? Are we manufacturing an atmosphere to, to meet our end and then saying, well, well God wants this, so, so we must, are we using something to justify our own desire? We want to be real honest there. So both sides, having robust discussion and trying to land as close to what God has given us as possible. Trying to balance that, as we said in the beginning, the spirit and spirit the truth. And truth. Spirit Everything. and truth. Well, this has been so wonderful. I've enjoyed my time with you. Thank you for, for yeah. agreeing to, to meet with us and to, to share your, your heart on this important issue. Thank you. It's easy when you got a Canadian brother. You know, yeah. we got to stick together, you know. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you so much. God bless. Thank you.